Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will love vain words and seek after lies? But, you, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, and we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear it, that we wouldn't just absorb it through the intellect, but that you would stir our hearts, that you would stir our affections to love you, that we would see here, even in this psalm, the hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the security that we have in his righteousness that is given to us, the security that we have in knowing that you are our eternal possession. And I pray that those things would be immensely comforting to us. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, this psalm is typically considered an evening psalm because of that final verse where the psalmist, who is David, says, I will lay down and I will sleep and I will rest in the Lord. In many ways, it's a companion psalm to the one we looked at last week. We looked at Psalm 3 last week, so it covers a lot of the same themes. Some people, some commentators, even see Psalm 3 as sort of the morning psalm and Psalm 4 as the evening psalm because they are overlapping and covering so many of the same themes. Now, if we think of this as an evening psalm, then we can think in terms of beginning with that very last verse, verse 8, and we can sort of work backwards from there. So let's look at the last verse, and then we'll start over and work our way through the psalm like we normally would. But verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now note the connection between the two halves of the verse. In peace I will both lie down and sleep because or for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So it's the Lord's presence, his ability to make David feel secure that allows him to sleep and to rest and to be comforted. So let's ask a question. How can we say with David that we will lie down and sleep in peace. Put another way, how can we rest secure? How can we have the same experience of dwelling in the Lord for refuge and safety? Do we really even need to identify the problem, the, the, 
the counter to that question. We don't always feel secure, do we? Life is hard, it's difficult, thousands of things can go wrong, and some of us are anxious, some of us are hurting, but this psalm points us to a pathway of peace. It shows us how we can rest in the Lord. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. How can we rest in the Lord? So pick up with me in Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So there's this petition, this opening appeal to God. Answer me when I call. And this whole language here of needing an answer and crying out or calling assumes that something isn't quite right. Something is off. Something needs to be taken care of. It assumes a difficult situation. Then pay attention to how David addresses God. He says, Oh God of my righteousness. God of my righteousness. Now, in this context, David most certainly means you are the God who will vindicate me before my enemies. You will make me right before my enemies. You will make me stand in the right. But when we consider the collective voice of Scripture, when we listen to all of the witness of Scripture, then there's a lot more that can be said about this phrase, God of my righteousness. And this is the first pathway to peace, the first way of learning to rest in the Lord. Our righteousness is secure in Christ. Our righteousness is secure in Christ. Charles Spurgeon famously said of preaching that you take up a text and you make a beeline for the cross. In other words, you, you find a passage and as soon as you can, you start talking about the cross and talking about the gospel. And I'm doing something of that here by looking at this first verse and saying, now let's talk about Christ, our righteousness. So let me state the gospel. Gospel means good news. And in order for something to be good news, usually we have to talk about the bad news. And that's where we need to start with the bad news. The bad news is that we are not righteous before a holy God. And there's really no nice way to say that. There's really no way we can make ourselves righteous. Sure, we can do lots of good things. We can make promises to be better people. But the simple fact is that if we look deep enough inside of ourselves, we lack the capacity to be truly righteous in a way that would, in any fashion, live up to the standards of a holy God. But Christ, and here's the good news, but Christ, who is God in the flesh, is perfectly righteous. And through his suffering and through his resurrection, we can have perfect peace before God. That is what I mean when I say that our righteousness is secure in Christ. That means our righteousness is secure because it's not secure in anything in ourselves. It's not rooted in us. It's rooted in something outside of ourselves, rather in someone outside of ourselves. It's rooted in who Christ is and what he has done. It's not based on our action or our behavior. It's based on what Christ has accomplished. Listen to how the New Testament puts it in just one place, and this is all over the New Testament. But Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.1. Therefore... 
since we have been justified. I want to come back, circle that word, underline that word because that's our word righteous. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is easy to miss in our language because the, the word justify literally means to make righteous. And if, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, this is a good time to note that. The reason I say that is because we don't have a verb form of the noun righteous. In other words, what I mean is this. You can't righteousify something, right? This is righteous. You see the connection, oh God of my righteousness, and here being made righteous. And this action, notice he says, we have been justified. Now, if you pay close attention to his language, and I know we have a number of English teachers here in our congregation, this is an action that has been taken, uh, that has taken place upon us. Okay? He doesn't say that since we justified ourselves, he says since we have been justified. An outside force or person has done the action of justifying us. Someone else has made us righteous. And how? Well, he says we have been justified by faith. That is by trust, not through good works, not through doing good deeds, not through benevolent behavior, not even through laid down our arms, however you want to put it, the point is that now we are in communion and in relationship, reconciliation, fellowship with the living God. We have peace with God. And who did this? Well, the end of the verse tells us through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his work, not through our own, but his. So the first thing that we can say is that by trusting in Christ, our righteousness is secure and it can never be taken away from us because it doesn't depend upon us. Our righteousness is secure in Christ. A life is difficult and uncertain. You only need to live a few years to figure that out. We don't know anything about the future. We never know the future. I know that's scary when we really think about it, and most of us would rather not think about it. I'm with you there. I would rather not think about what's going to happen tomorrow or in a week. It's a lot easier if we just think about today, because in a certain sense, that's all we really can do. But what we do know, what we can be certain about is that God will keep us, that we are secure. Look again at verse 1 here in Psalm 1 or Psalm 4. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. So David has experienced God's kindness in the past. Most of you, if you've been walking with the Lord for any number of the years, you can point to times when God has shown you kindness in moments of distress. Yes? Okay. Be gracious to me. And hear my prayer. David knows that on the basis of God's character, he can pray, Lord, be gracious to me. So David asked God to answer him. Now we may do the same. We may ask God to answer us. And it may be the case that God does not give us the temporal answers we so desire. It doesn't happen in every case. There are prayers that we pray that are not answered in the way that we would hope. There are tragedies that happen in spite of our prayers. There are things that go wrong even though we have been faithful in prayer. But our security in Christ is finalized. It is certain 
There is never any doubt about it. And for that reason, we can have the exact same assurance of David in the rest of this verse. You have given me relief when I was in distress. So again, some of you answered, we've seen this in the past, but we also know this will be a reality in the future. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. See, our biggest problem, the problem of sin and death, has been answered decisively by God's action in Christ. We can be certain, therefore, that the Lord will be gracious to us because He has been gracious to us and He will continue to be gracious to us. That's what David asked for. And in Christ we receive, as the New Testament puts it, grace upon grace. It's lavishly bestowed upon us. And this message is repeated throughout the New Testament. For example, in the exhortations that Paul gives to the Philippian believers, we see it there in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, when Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything. Well, thanks, Paul. That, that doesn't help when you're an anxious person, right? It's like the therapist who looks at you and says, Don't be anxious. Quit it. Stop it. There's an old SNL skit about that that I'm much too young to remember, but somehow I know. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's like saying, stop it. But notice that he's not rooting it in simply stopping it. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promised result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. And I think this is the key in Christ Jesus. This isn't some sort of wishy-washy peace. This isn't a self-help book. This isn't, hey, quit thinking bad thoughts and things will get better. He's saying that there is a place of refuge and safety and security in Christ Jesus. And it's on the basis of what Christ has done that we make our prayers and requests and thanksgivings known to God. So the whole reason he can say don't be anxious is rooted in what Christ has done. He's not saying it just as a matter of generality to say, don't be anxious, quit it. He's saying because God has acted in Christ, don't be anxious. Peter says the same in 1 Peter 5. He tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And one of the ways he says we do that is by casting our anxieties or our cares upon him for he cares for you. And how has God demonstrated his care for you? Through how he has acted in Christ. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us by sending Christ Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. As 1 John says it. All of it is rooted in what Christ has done. The reason we can be certain of God's grace is because Christ makes us righteous. The reason we can rejoice and bring our cares before God is because Christ makes us righteous. Truly, we can say with David, O oh God of my righteousness, because it's not rooted in me. My righteousness comes from you, O oh Lord. And then David turns his attention to his enemies. I know we just rung verse 1, didn't we? we? We won't do every verse like that. This won't be a 40-minute sermon, I hope. But he gives them some instruction. Look at verse 2. O men, or sons of men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The pathway to peace, as I've said, is to trust what God has done in Christ. David's enemies, though, are not trusting God. 
Okay, they're not looking forward to what God has promised to do to redeem the world. They are rejecting that. Do you remember in Psalm 2? In Psalm 2, we saw that the nations are gathered together and the peoples are meditating or plotting in vain. That's Psalm 2, verse 1. And they've set themselves up against the Lord and against His Messiah, His Christ. Do you remember all that? Okay, I think there's a key connection here. Because what they're doing, and the pattern we see in Psalm 2, is a rejection of the Lord's plan, not trusting in Him. And that plotting in vain... We hear an echo of that here in verse 2 of Psalm 4. How long will you love vain, same Hebrew word, vain words and seek after lies? It almost is a way of just saying, hey, remember what I said a couple of Psalms ago. Listen closely. How long will you continue in this path of not trusting the Lord, but plotting in emptiness, living life on our own terms, not surrendering to the Lord? They are making their own plans. But look what David says next in verse 3. But know, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And this is the second pathway to peace, the second way to rest in the Lord. The Lord has set His people apart for Himself. The Lord has set His people apart for Himself. They are His people, and He is their God. And that's immensely comforting to know that your identity, that who you are, is one of God's chosen people if you're in Christ. David can look at those enemies who would surround him and he say, you may have me surrounded now, but you need to know something. You need to know that I belong to the Lord. You need to know that the Lord is on my side. You need to know that He is the God of my righteousness. And even if you should defeat me, even if you should run me out of my throne, even if I should die, I will be vindicated by my God when all is said and done. Now he says that the Lord here has set apart the godly for himself. And by godly, I don't think at all that he means to say that he's banking on his own righteousness. I don't think he means to say I'm godly because of what I've done. I think the pattern we've seen, and I hopefully have shown you in the preceding Psalms, from Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and Psalm 3, and the pattern in all of Scripture for that matter, is that the godly are those who trust in the Lord. That's a simple definition. How, do you be a, how, how, how can someone be godly? By trusting in the Lord. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? It means to believe that He has acted in Christ to make you righteous. It means to trust that Christ and Christ alone, and alone's really a key word here. Highlight it, underline it. Christ alone can make you righteous. See, if you trust in yourself, or you trust in your good behavior, If you trust in the fact that you work for a church, you're not trusting in Christ. If you trust in a priest or a pastor or a church or a ritual, you aren't trusting in Christ. You see, all of these things are hindrances to trusting in Christ alone, to throwing ourselves in total surrender in faith on what Christ has done. Because all of it, all of it is a lack of faith. All of it is looking at what Christ has done and saying, yeah, but that might not be enough. And you hear it all the time in popular culture. People talk about coming up to the pearly gates and telling Peter all the things they've done or the things they haven't done. But but the only thing that matters in that moment is whether or not you've trusted in Christ. That's what matters. 
So Scripture repeatedly urges us to repent in the sense of throwing ourselves on what Christ has done. Now before I explain the second point more, that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself, I want to pick up verses 4 and 5. Be angry. Here David's giving some instruction to his enemies, by the way. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Let me just stop here and talk a second about a couple of things. First, be angry. I know some of your translations might have something like tremble or shake or be fearful. There's some debate about the Hebrew word here. Uh, but I want to come back to be angry because the New Testament picks it up and reads it that way. So we'll talk about that. But also notice that last bit, be silent, which could mean also something like lament or well. So the idea is all moving toward repentance. And you're going to see that in a second. But Suzanne captured this in her solo already. She sang about being still and being silent. The idea is that we would trust and repent. Okay, be silent before the living God. So David goes on, he says, offer, in verse 5, offer right sacrifices, and here it is, culminating in this, put your trust in the Lord. Now this offering right sacrifices is really just the same word as righteous. Right and righteous are the same word. I'm really not sure why you wouldn't just translate this, offer righteous sacrifices, because it is the same word. But... Nevertheless, we have right here. But the point, all of this, verses 4 and 5, what David is telling his enemies is that you must turn to the Lord. All of it is leading to this idea of repentance, this idea of trusting in the Lord, resigning oneself to the Lord. That's David's instruction. So how does the New Testament pick this up? Well, if you look at verse 4 there, that phrase, be angry and do not Sin is picked up in the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament by Paul. And I actually think it's incredibly instructive for us. I think it helps us understand what's going on here. I think it helps us understand what's going on in Ephesians. So let me talk you through Ephesians. I know some of you are in a Sunday school class and you're going through Ephesians right now. That's great. So you have a leg up on the rest of us. But let me just talk about it quickly. In chapter 1, Paul launches into one of the most breathtaking sections of Scripture, in my opinion, in the entire canon of the Bible. There is, starting in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, a 202-word run-on sentence in the original where he is extolling the stunning action of the Trinity in redeeming God's people. And there we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit working in perfect unison, in perfect harmony to redeem God's God's people. For example, he writes very early on in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ the Father chose us before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Remember what David said. God has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. So the New Testament clarifies how that's possible. In Christ, we are made righteous so that we might be holy or godly before God. Ephesians 2 goes on to explain more of this saying, We were dead in sin, but God raised us up in Christ, and by grace we are saved, not through our works. It's very explicit. Then on the basis of that reality, of what Paul said in Ephesians 1 and 2, 
Paul describes the practical implications in Ephesians 4 through 6. He says in chapter 4 that we are to live new lives in Christ. Remember, God has already acted to put us in Christ, to seal us by His Spirit, to position us as His people. And so we are to live by putting off the old person and being renewed in our new identity in Christ. Quoting Ephesians 4.24 here, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So how are we righteous? We're righteous because of what God has done in Christ. Then he gets specific. And one of the specific things he says is an exact quote from Psalm 4. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So all of that is to say, and what Paul is driving at, he's driving at this huge theological argument. And then he gets specific and he says, here's what that would look like in your life. If you really understand what God has done in Christ, here's what that means on the ground. Here's what it looks like in the day-to-day -day practice. And then he quotes Psalm 4, be angry and do not sin. Here's all, how all of this connects and the reason I think Paul quotes from this psalm. If you are in Christ, you have been set apart by God for himself. Let that sink in. You have been set apart by God for himself. You have been given a new identity and you are called to live in a different manner, an alternative manner. You are called to reflect the unique calling as one of God's own people. Your identity is not what the world says about you or even what you want to say about you. Your identity is that God has in Christ done what you could never do for yourself. And that calling of living out that identity looks very much like what David describes here in Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer righteous sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It is a life-shaped by trust in the Lord. So the pathway to peace, to resting in the Lord, is grasping the breadth of what the Lord has done for you in Christ, and then living life in light of and empowered by that reality. Grasping what God has done and living life in light of and empowered by that reality. Let's look at the final three verses, picking up in verse 6. I'll read these all together here. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Look at what David says concerning the Lord. You have put more joy. You have put more joy in my heart. The greatest satisfaction, the thing you're seeking, is the Lord Himself. You've put more joy in my heart than when their grain and their wine abound, more than anything this world can offer. Psalm 63.3 says, your steadfast love is better than life. Somewhere, John Piper has drawn the correct inference on that verse. He says, if the Lord's steadfast love is better than life, it is better than all that life has to offer. It's better than all the stuff and all the things and all the relationships in this life. And here's our third point to finding rest in the Lord. The Lord is an everlasting possession that can never be taken away. The Lord is an everlasting possession that can never be taken away. There's a famous verse that probably most of you know in the middle of a discussion on suffering. Paul writes... 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for good. He goes on to say that what we have in Christ, as he ends chapter 8, can never be taken away from us. Swords can't do it. Death can't do it. Plagues can't do it. Angels and powers and principalities, they can't do it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, he says. This is why Jesus instructs us in Matthew chapter 6 to store up treasures that cannot be destroyed. Or consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, another one of those breathtaking sections. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, not on our works, His mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Again, we didn't do it, He did it. To a living hope through, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. That is, and he describes it with three adjectives here. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept or guarded in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. You too are being guarded. Because God has set the godly apart for himself. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What we have in Christ can never ever be taken away. We rejoice in the security of our salvation, the fact that we will forever be with the Lord. And all of this culminates in that grand vision in Revelation 21 at the end of your Bible when God comes to dwell with His people and we are told that forever they will be His people and He will be their God. He is our possession that can never be taken away from us. Now, I have to confess to you that I find this difficult. I find this to be a real challenge in our world. I think it's part of the world we're in, the, the atmosphere, it's the water we swim in. It makes it very, very difficult. I don't know about you, but I tend to fixate on this world and the joys of this world, at least when things are good. And I do that so much so that I forget and perhaps even, if I'm really honest, reject the idea that one day... I will look upon Christ and behold the living God and every desire in me will be satisfied in a way that nothing in this world could possibly match. I've been reading a book on some of the American Puritans lately and actually this morning I finished um, the story of Anne Bradstreet. Anne Bradstreet wrote a lot of famous poems but at one point late in her life she went through a series of tragedies. First she lost her mother, which is always hard but to be expected, perhaps. Then she lost her father, which again is to be expected, but still difficult. Then she lost her one-and-a-half-year-old grandchild, followed by two other grandchildren, followed by her 28-year-old daughter-in-law. And then, to top it all off, half of her home was burnt down in a fire. And as she looked at that, she penned a poem, and in that poem she said, Farewell. Farewell to all of this stuff. My hope and treasure lies above. It is essential for us that we cultivate what we might call a heavenly mindedness. Our Christian forebears have urged us to meditate upon beholding the glory of God. And we do that by faith now, as we gaze upon Christ, the glory of God, through Scripture, and by sight. In heaven. Yes, we will behold the glory of God in Christ. St. Augustine put it this way, telling us this pathway to happiness. 
If anyone accepts the present life in such a spirit that he uses it with the end in view of that other life on which he has set his heart with all his ardor and for which he hopes with all his confidence. You you see how he's thinking about the future. Such a man may without absurdity be called happy even now, though rather by future hope than in present reality. That's David. He looks at his enemies here and he says, I'm surrounded. Things are bad. Answer me when I call. But then he can still conclude a psalm by saying, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Why? Because his eyes are beholding the glory of God. He's looking ahead and all of his confidence, all of his hope is set on what God is doing to redeem the world. Look, nothing in this life will satisfy you. Everything is fallen and it is uncertain and it's unstable. It's all transient. But in Christ, we have a better hope because in Christ, we have perfect peace with the living God. In Christ, we have been set apart by God for himself. We are his possession and he is ours. There's a lot of hymns that would go here. Blessed assurance comes to mind. Be thou my visions, another great one. But I want to close with the words from perhaps an unfamiliar hymn, but the words from a hymn by Wade Robinson. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine in a love that cannot cease i am his and he is mine let's pray together almighty god there is nothing more precious than you And as we consider who you are and what you've done in our world, we are stunned, we are captivated. Lord, we confess that our views are often so narrow and so short-sighted. We're so nearsighted in our lives that we sometimes fail to look far enough ahead. I pray that you would grant to us the grace to look to our home with you. Whether that's in what we might consider an intermediate period in heaven or when all of creation itself is redeemed and your presence fills every single square inch of creation and we dwell with you forever as your people and you as our God. Lord, I pray that this would give us peace. I pray for this congregation for those who are suffering and hurting, for the many who continue to grieve losses over this last year, and even in the preceding years, because those things really never go away. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them with a peace that surpasses understanding that is only available to them in Christ. I pray that we would rest in our secure righteousness of what Christ has done. And Lord, I pray that you would save us from the folly of thinking that there's anything we could contribute to our salvation. I pray that you would save us from the folly of thinking that our atonement, our righteousness is based on anything other than what Christ has done for us. And I pray that that would be a great comfort to us as we learn to trust in that more and more and be anchored by that. In the various trials and the various circumstances that we face. Lord, I pray for those who may not believe this morning. 
I pray that you might give them the grace to believe, that you would open their eyes to see and to behold what you have done in Christ. And I pray that you would be pleased to glorify yourself in this service and in this church. We pray these things, of course, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done what we could never do. Amen.